My name is Lawrence K. Nanisset, and I've worked with Trojan Records since the early 90s. Before that, I was a music journalist writing about Jamaican music. I grew up in West London, but uh, during my uh, youth, was a, a frequent visitor to Brent because I used to trawl around London looking uh, uh, for records, essentially, uh, uh, Jamaican music records. First of all, I was into R&B, old-style R&B, 50s-style. Um, but then Brent became a familiar sort of grounding place for me because, um, or familiar hunting ground, I should say, um, because, uh, as I say, I was always seeking out records and I used to place adverts in, in papers, like Loot, when that finally came out in the 80s, I think, um, asking uh, if I could, uh, who was selling records and how I could acquire them. So I travelled all over London, but Brent and Brixton were my two main ports of call. Uh, so I got to know Brent very, very well there. Uh, it was a great source of uh, Jamaican music for me. Growing up in the 60s and 70s as a young man, every type of music was played in, in, in pretty much everyone's homes, especially working class homes. And I came from a very working class background. So reggae, when it, it took off, uh, was a regular fixture uh, as soon as it started being played on the radio especially. But even before then, when it was more of an underground thing and skinheads started buying it, um, I was sort of uh, exposed to, to Jamaican music then. I also used to go to Chelsea Football Club, uh, which subsequently didn't have the greatest uh, reputations in terms of, um, sort of racial integration. But uh, in the 60s, before every game, they used to play Jamaican music. So I became familiar with sort of quite relatively obscure tracks through that. I used to play things like Sammy Dead, big Jamaican hit, but relatively unknown in the UK. Um, so tracks like that would be played before Liquidator came along, and that became the theme tune for, Tro uh, for, for Chelsea as they ran out onto the pitch, and it has been ever since. I also had down our street, there, were, there was a very multicultural area, or not very multicultural, but a bit multicultural, I should say, um, and so friends, you know, friends with Afro-Caribbean heritage would play Jamaican music to me, ska, rock, steady, reggae. So I, I got a very sort of strong background in, in Jamaican music that way. But as I say, even in even you know my own house, um, before I started buying reggae, it, it was it was regularly played. My older brother and sister would buy records uh, such as Time Out Volume Two and things like that. Um, so it, it was a frequent, a frequent soundtrack, or well-played soundtrack uh, to my life as a young man. The first record I purchased actually was 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 uh, "Blue Is the Color" by Chelsea, Chelsea FC. Uh, first LP was um, Sgt. Pepper's uh, "Lonely Hearts Club" band by the Beatles. But in those days, you didn't really, well, we didn't, I didn't, and most people didn't think of music in genres. We thought of music as just music, pop music. Um, and the first record, I wasn't buying records really till I was in my early teens. Uh, but as I say, my brother and sister were buying records that um, were of all sorts of genres. And there was no snobbery about what style it was or where it came from. You know, Motown sat very comfortably alongside um, psychedelic stuff, you know, Deep Purple and, and reggae. So... But my early records, my early purchases weren't Jamaican music. Uh, but when I started buying records seriously, I was buying things like uh, records by groups like the Five Satins and Fats Domino and various artists like that. So I was very much into black American music 
Um, and that was sort of, in a way, it was an interesting connection, obviously a very strong connection with uh, Jamaican music, uh, right from its um, sort of record, beginnings of its recording industry onwards. I have a favourite reggae track, I suppose that for me, um, above all others, only because it's resonated with me. I've enjoyed it for so many, many years since I was a young kid. And I remember her hearing Return of Shango by the Upsetters and just being blown away by it. I thought, oh my goodness, what is this? Thou Bennett saxophone. I mean, it was just, uh, was, I mean, essentially it goes back. It was really the record that really sort of almost turned me on to old R&B because it is essentially an old R&B tune. It's, it's a Fats Domino and Chris Kenner tune. My favorite track is Return of Django by uh, The Upsetters. And that really, the reason why I say that's my favorite track is it just, it, it's been part of my life for as long as I can remember. Uh, we grew up with it. I remember it being in the charts. Uh, we having the records. I mean, it was it was. I never said. I mean, just I remember hearing it and just being blown away by it. With um, Val Bennett's sax playing, it's just oh, it's, it's superb. The whole thing, the whole rhythm, the whole feel, and in a way, that's what got me into vintage Jamaican music, uh, vintage uh, American music, was because it was it borrowed heavily on on uh, American R&B and in fact it, it's a cover of an old R&B song retitled so that has to be my favorite tune but of course there are so many I mean my boy Lollipop even though it's, it's something of a pop tune it, that had a huge impact on me as well uh, I was madly in love with Millie Small as a, as a young kid um, still am a bit but uh, yeah Return of Django for me, I think number one. But if I want to find if I want to find out about what's happening reggae wise, because I'm not the social animal that I used to be, uh, it's it's obviously speaking to artists, which I'm in, in touch with quite a few still, but but they tend to be the older generation um, through friends, all all of whom are into it. You know, I, I've got a big circle of friends who live and breathe Jamaican music um, from all different backgrounds. Um, the okay. internet obviously is a is another source, but it, it's essentially word of mouth. Brent has played an absolutely incredible part in the in the history of Jamaican music um, for for a, a, a borough that's sort of not widely recognised um, for its its contribution to British culture. I mean, it's nothing short of profound. Um, the, it was uh, at uh, Trojan Records, obviously started in Brent uh, Island Records. Um, started at 108 Cambridge Road, which is Kilburn, um, which I believe is part of the borough of Brent. I might be wrong there, but um, but uh, from there, 108 Cambridge Road, that's where Chris Blackwell had his Island Records. Um, after starting up elsewhere, he, he he made his base there, and then he then the building in which he rented at 108 Cambridge Road, as I say, was um, as owned by Lee Gottfall, who got into mail order business. Um, he started being commercial with some friends like Jim Flynn and a few others. And they started a mail order business. And in the basement, we had, there was Sonny Roberts with uh, the first um, studio that was owned by someone of, of Afro-Caribbean heritage. Um, so it was a real, and he started his record label there as well, Planetone, um, went on to be Orbitone. So it, it was hugely important right from sort of early days. That was the early 60s, 62, I think, uh, Ireland moved into there. And then subsequently, uh, 
Ireland uh, moved to Neasden uh, along with BNC. They formed Trojan uh, at um, 12 Neasden Lane. And uh, there they, uh, before that, actually before then, I should say, sorry, at the time, early six, in the early 60s, there was quite a thriving sort of uh, Afro-Caribbean community in, in the area of Brent, within the borough of Brent, and obviously that led to a lot of um, diversity in terms of you know, multiculturalism, but also it led to businesses opening that catered to the Afro-Caribbean communities, and that included record shops and clubs, and uh, Lee Gopsall, soon after sort of meeting Chris Blackwell, who was also from Jamaica, obviously, um, started a record shop, Music Land, and that was um, Wilson Green in, I think it was 13 High Street in, in, in Wilson Green, and that was about mid 60s, and that was uh, became sort of the specialist Jamaican music shop. So obviously this was before reggae, and so but they used to sell soul music and, and, and Jamaican music imports largely from Jamaica, and then uh, in 1968, as I say. Ireland and uh, BNC, Lee Gopsall's organization, moved to Neasden 12 and Neasden Lane where they formed Trojan Records. They pooled their resources. By then, BNC were also issuing Jamaican music. And this was still before uh, the arrival of reggae. Um, so it's still very much sort of a, an underground sort of thing in terms of the mainstream pop uh, music scene is, is concerned. And uh, shortly afterwards, uh, there was sort of a, a reggae explosion. Reggae was, was, was created in Jamaica. Various people take credit for it, of course. But Trojan uh, was at its absolute epicenter. Went over to Jamaica, did loads of deals with all the key producers other than Prince Buster, essentially, who had a deal with Melodisc Records. And uh, tied up deals and started releasing records on a huge array of, well, what became a huge array of, of subsidiary labels. So every producer and every artist of note other than Prince Buster featured on those records. But at this time, it was still a relatively sort of, you know, unknown music as far as the, the, the great British public uh, uh, outside the Afro-Caribbean community were known. It was at this time that actually skinhead, the whole skinhead thing took off and they, they discovered uh, reggae as, as it developed and sort of uh, embraced it because it sort of, it, it, it was a reflection of their their backgrounds. It was dance music, simple, no nonsense at this time. That's what reggae was. It was just essentially there were obviously messages, deep messages being conveyed in in some of the songs, a lot of the songs, but essentially it was dance music, and uh, skinheads loved it, and they loved the, the Jamaican styles as well. So it was very much, as Don Letts often says, it's very much the fashion type of skinheads, not the fascist type, and um, uh, and that helped sort of propel uh, Jamaican music into the mainstream, their buying power at least. So uh, this was all happening essentially with Trojan at its core, but just down the road from 12 and Eastern Lane uh, was also Palmer Records, who also were Trojan's big uh, rivals, and they were owned by um, uh, three brothers, Harry, Jeff, and Carl Palmer. And um, so they set up their... their, their um, their offices that uh, they they'd also been sort of running clubs and and and, and, and shops and things. Um, between them, they sort of had the Apollo Club, which was in Wilston High Street. And about sort of 67, they opened 
Palmer Records, which initially is sort of a soul label, but then that sort of jumped onto the to the reggae uh, bandwagon, although it was issuing Jamaican music before reggae. Um, so really, these two powerhouses drove Jamaican music in the UK and beyond, because you know Jamaican music really came to the UK, and it was from the UK that it was propelled sort of around the world. And Trojan Records was by far the most successful label. It had 30 major UK hits between 69 and 75, um, including number one hits. It, it was really the, the company that marketed, effectively marketed reggae to the world. And also what happened was it, it wasn't just music from Jamaica that it was releasing. It was releasing music from, from UK reggae bands. A lot of people, you know, a lot of people in those bands uh, those artists came from Brent, you know. Um, so, it, in that in that way, it had a massive impact impact because that reggae explosion basically changed the face of of, of world music because it wasn't just within the UK that that you know it, reggae didn't just become popular and that was it. it. It sort of that was it. The various subgenres of reggae they you know they influenced dubs, for example, you know like dubstep and whatever. I mean. It goes on and on and on, uh, its influence. So it became part of British culture, I think. Also, we had, there was the Chalk Farm Studios, which was in Camden, which I think that area is, is also in Brent. I might be wrong there. But um, where Vic Keary set up uh, his business and um, produced, uh, from Chalk Farm Recording Studios, produced most of um, Trojans UK um, produced hits. So he was responsible of, uh, for running that. Um, and it really was, sort of, as I say, in the late 60s, early 70s, just the epicenter of Jamaican music outside of Jamaica. It was where it all happened. And Trojans marketing, um, they had obviously very strong, long-standing ties with Jamaica. Some of the staff, obviously from Jamaica, a lot of the staff. Um, yeah, they, they popularized reggae around the world. Otherwise, you know, if it hadn't been, some could argue if it wasn't for Trojan, um, then reggae would have just sort of, you know, had a, been a brief blip in the history of the popular music, and, and that would have been it as far as the mainstream was concerned. But of course, it's still with us, and it's still developed, and it's still developing. Um, and a lot of artists back in the 60s and 70s and 80s uh, came from Bren, and uh, and are still, you know, still. Uh, coming from Brent. So it's still a sort of hotbed of, of, of activity in terms of, um, of music. So it's, um, we, the world is, is, uh, should be thankful, certainly, uh, to the borough of Brent because you know, it, it, it was the home of reggae outside of Jamaica. Well, sound systems obviously have, I mean, that's where the whole music industry, Jamaican music industry originated was, was obviously getting specials for your sound and when American R&B music uh, changed um, Jamaican audiences wanted something different they wanted something that well they wanted something like the old style R&B and when they couldn't get it the producers or the sound system operators started producing their own music so sound systems have always been an integral part of Jamaican music as a whole and I think um, the sound obviously Brent being having a large Afro-Caribbean uh, population um, it was, it was hugely important in terms of entertainment and in terms of, 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 of spreading spreading the sort of the new music amongst the people. Sound system culture and reggae 
was was hugely important in terms of sort of um, helping business in Brent. I mean, it was apart from the fact that um, it drew people there, obviously later years like me to the area. Uh, I was spending millions of pounds, but um, for local businesses, it, it was sort of part of the back. It was a soundtrack of uh, Jamaican music. It was a soundtrack for many local businesses. I think it, music played a hugely important part to to people generally. In the area, obviously, and beyond, but but because of Jamaican, especially people from the Caribbean, because it was a, it was a sound from home, um, but also because it, people needed an escape. Often, you know, I mean, it wasn't Brent wasn't the most affluent of regions, areas, and you know, music is is the perfect escape from from your own environment, really. So it, it really. It helped, obviously, financially because money came into the area through Palmer, Trojan, the clubs, you know, the, the sound systems. People were coming to the area, but it also really helped. I think just generally, um, sort of lift spirits. It was, it was, it was a tonic to to the hardships of of, of life. And I'm not saying Brent was, you know, was was the worst in, in that respect in the UK, but but it certainly suffered its fair share of, of neglect as far as government support goes reggae um reggae's influence i think well that of, uh, and everything around it um afro-caribbean culture really had a huge impact on people such as me from a sort of white you know traditionally english background um in how we dressed back then and how how we danced and what we did uh, fashion wise as i say skinheads took their inspiration from from jamaican and afro-caribbean um, fashion. It was. It was. People saw Desmond Decker up on stage, saw that he wore his trousers a bit short or wore a two, you know, a two-tone suit, and you know they wanted it. Um, and that sort of it was sort of kick-started the whole skinhead thing away from mod. I mean, mod was was influenced by uh, various things, but um, including American and Afro-Caribbean uh, culture. Uh, throwing mods were into scar as much as anything else, and the smart suits reflected the same sort of styles worn in places like Jamaica. So clothes, why personally, it affected me because yeah, I I, I would dress like that. I would dress. Um, by the time I was at my peak in the late 70s, early 80s, yeah, I was wearing smart suits as uh, sort of Jamaican style from 1965 or something. You know, it was very much. That thing. I mean, if you're into the music, it, it goes hand in hand with fashion generally, but um, particularly so, I think it was it was such a smart, cool look. And of course, then you wanted to dance. You wanted to dance the right way. You didn't want to be made a fool of yourself. So uh, where you could, you get your Jamaican mates to tell you how to dance uh, without looking an idiot. And I went to growing up a number of blue well, when I was young, young teenager, when I first experienced um, you know blues dances. Uh, blues parties, um, and uh, I've been scared out of my wits because um, obviously there weren't many. Well, in fact, I was about being the mates to other white guys and some, and some black friends as well. Um, and obviously, I you know I picked up some stuff there, but at the same time, I was petrified because all the all the light all the light bulbs were out, and I was um, squashed up against the wall while everyone was having fun and. Um, there were a lot of shenanigans going on dancing to the music, but yeah, it, so it, it, it impacted not just uh, musically but also in every other sense. You know, you wanted to be, you, you, to be honest with you, black mates are cool, and and you wanted to be cool. Who doesn't? Well, some people don't care, but but I certainly did, um, and uh, so I took my inspiration from them.
and uh, yeah, I've got them to thank for my lifelong love of, of, of reggae. I think reggae had a, a big impact on 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 culture and politics in the UK um, early on it, because it helped, I think, introduce, recognize the first real recognition, you know, people coming over from the Caribbean long time contributing significantly to, to British culture. But it wasn't really recognized. You know, people were sort of there's more in the services or into nursing or things like that. I mean, that's how it was perceived. But, you know, and it was, so it was very much uh, not really widely recognized or appreciated. And I think reggae, the coming of reggae, was the first time people sort of sat up and thought, well, wait a minute, yeah, where, where's this coming from? And really sort of uh, took note of, 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 of what was going on in terms of Afro-Caribbean culture. Up until then, it was, you know, it, it just wasn't generally, you know, discussed or, or, or people just weren't aware of it. So I think certainly in terms of integration as well, talking about the skinheads and, and, and you know, people such as myself, you know, it, it, it sort of, it was it contributed to integration not so much me i suppose because i had black friends at school before but but um but it, it did certainly affect the general sort of um or at least it seemed to be sort of the beginnings of a proper multiculturalism although obviously it still had a long way to go and, and unfortunately you know still still you still get racism whatever but it it was certainly sowed those seeds i think and kids who might have grown up racist uh, instead of looking sort of disparagingly at uh, people from the Caribbean, looked, uh, I'm talking about white kids, you know, looked with, with, with envy uh, uh, and sort of inspiration. So in terms on that level, on the ground sort of level, as it were, street level, especially in urban areas I'm talking about, in, in inner cities, um, it had, it had a, a big impact, and obviously that was to, to ultimately influence the way you know things have gone since then. Politically, there were songs, that early early songs about politics, things like "Wonderful World, Beautiful People," and "Enoch Power" by um, Millie, which had uh, and things by Laurel Aitken as well. He he recorded while well, "Enoch Meant Power" was making his "Rivers of Blood" speech. Uh, there was a reaction against that. But in terms of actually direct political, where it was sort of noticeable, I think it first became sort of. Um, apparent later on, you know, with people like groups like Steel Pulse, um, even Ali Aswad, I mean, a lot of the black slave people like that who are making music um, and making very, very political statements specifically about places in, in the UK. And that made people obviously sit up and take notice. But as I say, prior to that, I think it had a very sort of a subtle but very, very important and, and under uh, sort of appreciated influence in terms of, of recognition of, 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 um, of black culture generally, but specifically Afro-Caribbean, black Afro-Caribbean culture, um, the music. Um, and uh, I think it certainly helped people sort of, uh, you know, finally acknowledge that, um, you know, there, there was a lot more to, to people from the Caribbean rather than just, you know, just people who were, Doing jobs which you know which which aren't necessarily uh, sort of widely appreciated. They are now, obviously, in situations like this. You know, nurses are sort of uh, thankfully uh, recognised, but it was obviously nurses is just one of a thousand. You know, any job that you can think of, um, people from the Caribbean were doing, um, but with obviously a, a large de degree of um, 
uh, of, in an environment where there was a large degree of uh, racism, so it was very difficult for people to um, to excel in, in in certain industries because they were prevented from doing so not through talent and ability, but because of prejudice. And obviously, with reggae, it, it initially was a problem, but that broke down that barrier of of of, um, of, of sort of prevented people sort of receiving wide widespread and, and mainstream acknowledgement of, of their um, their contributions i think brent is uh, especially what's what's happening at the moment is what's going on is fantastic because it's making a very very conscious effort to acknowledge uh it's it's amazing history musically and i uh, i i can't honestly applaud the efforts of people like zaretha and michael Genuinely, I can't uh, any more than, than than is possible because they've they've done an amazing amount and they're doing an amazing amount to ensure that the area is 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 rightly recognised. Uh, all the people who have, have worked and lived and, and died, unfortunately, within the area, have contributed to um, to the world as a whole, as I say, through music and and, and many other things. Um, uh, in terms of reggae. Uh, you know, it's, it's exhibitions that are being held and, and uh, plaques that are being put up and things like this. I think it is fantastic. As I remember coming as someone who's obviously been a lifelong reggae fan to the area and thinking, oh, it's such a shame there's not sort of, you know, knowledge. Where, where, where was the Trojan office? Where, where, you know, where was that shop? Where was this, you know? Um, and not really having a clue who lived here. You know, no one really knew uh, about Brent's rich musical history. And I think that has been addressed superbly at the moment uh, and it, it's wonderful because and i think there's other obviously other places in the uk where that can certainly be done in terms of reggae certainly brixton obviously is the obvious um, choice as well but um i mean i think brent is actually while you know a lot of the buying public obviously uh for reggae lived in in places like brixton really as i've mentioned before brent was the reggae capital of the world outside of kingston jamaica so, um, and I think that that um, all that it's doing in terms of uh, 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 making sure that message gets out to the world is, has been fantastic. So, hopefully, you know, there, there come a time if 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 uh, in the not too distant future, you know, where you know you could almost have tours of of the the, the musical sites within Brent, where uh, it, you know these these amazing historical things happened. And you can go and visit. I'd certainly love that. And I know an awful lot of people would. Um, but in terms of acknowledgement, as, as I say, uh, Brent is doing an amazing job and it, 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 um, the Brent Council and people working on it, specifically on, on this project, are, uh, are doing all they can and it has to be applauded because it's superb. And um, for people like me, you know, it's, 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 it's a godsend. It's something that we've you know, wanted for a long time.